0: Welcome to a bonus edition of Behind the Mic with Audiophile Magazine. I'm Joe Reed.
1: The darkness was inside me, I think, long before I raised my brother from the dead. My silver heart's glass merely gave it a mouth, made the darkness realize that it too can hunger. This is not Fox's fault. This is not Lady Michaela's fault. I have told the Bard much of my story.
0: All but its end. You just heard actor and one of Audiophile Magazine's newest golden voices, Emily Wu Zeller, narrating the fantasy The Shadow Glass by Rin Chapeco. Emily Wu Zeller is a marvel of a narrator. There are few people with her ability to bring you into a story, whether it's a work of nonfiction or science fiction and fantasy, or stories of immigrants. She captures the heart of a book. She narrates many Asian and Asian American works using language and accents effortlessly. So they're never ever parodies. They're deeply authentic and intimate. Emily has won many awards, including an audio award, several best of the year awards, as well as numerous earphone awards from Audiophile magazine. And now, Emily Wu Zeller is a member of Audiophile's 2020 class of Golden Voices. Born in California, Emily Wu Zeller began her career in Hong Kong, voicing anime. And that's where I began my conversation with her. I wanted the backstory to this. My mother's family is from Hong Kong
1: or Guangdong, so and, and the last... Ten years that she was there, they were in Hong Kong. And one of my sisters was scouted to be a model and was sent over to Asia because at the time she was told, we can't sell you in the United States. You're not white enough and you're not exotic enough, but Asia will love you. (laughs) So that gives you a sense. That was, uh, how long ago was that? Oh, do you laugh or cry? (sighs) Right, exactly. That was um, 17 years ago. So she went to Singapore and then to Hong Kong, and I was in college. Uh, And when I graduated college, decided to go and live with her. And so we lived in Hong Kong for a couple of years together. And I had studied dance and performance studies in college and was wanting to, you know, be an artist. And so my community, while I was there, were primarily English-speaking expats or immigrants. Political, which way you say that. And within my community of fellow performers, found out about an audition for dubbing anime and took to it like a fish to water. And the rest is kind of history.
0: And how long did you
1: do that? I did that for almost the entire time that I was there in Hong Kong, a year and a half. At the time, it's it's different now actually, but at the time in Hong Kong anyway, we were dubbing an average of four episodes per day and for anybody who knows what dubbing or what giving voice to animation here in the United States is like that's incredibly fast. We were in there and shooting from the hip. (laughs) So it was a really good training for a specific voiceover skill which is being able to make quick decisions. It's like doing improv or you know live theater that's interactive and you have to be able to make something real and connected very quickly. And so that's that's part of the training that I got there.
0: So when you returned to the United States, did you think about doing audiobooks immediately?
1: I wanted to do voiceover immediately, for sure. I definitely wanted to stay in that realm. Voiceover felt like the medium that married the particular performing art forms that I was trained in. And it felt the best to me in terms of how I how I express myself. So I wanted to continue that but had no idea how to break into anything. I was still in my 20s and had not spent any adult time outside of school in the United States, but found out about an audition for BBC Audiobooks America at the time is what they were called in Rhode Island. When I came back to the United States, that's where I lived for a year. And Created a demo, very not professional demo, but the best that I could do, and um, submitted it. <laughs> and thankfully, they were willing to hear it. <laughs> this was a uh, two thousand nine, and then they had me come in for an in person audition, and that's what uh, what started my journey into audiobooks.
0: Why did it feel like a good fit for you, if you can remember what it felt like?
1: Oh, for sure. Well, one, I've I love to read, so. There's that. There's that you get to play hundreds, hundreds of different characters, which is any actor's dream, I imagine. And I'm also very endurance-oriented. I tend to like endurance uh-huh. events. I've never been a sprinter. I've always been a long-distance kind of person. And audiobooks is that, if nothing else. And my training, Absolutely. again, back in, in uh, Hong Kong was... You know, we had full nine a.m. to six p.m. six days a week, and we were doing four episodes a day. So I was literally not just my brain, right, but my voice was being exercised, and you know, doing anything from a dolphin voice and parrot voices to tiny magical dwarf children to big, you know, enormous. What- so all of the characters, all day long, and sustaining stories because if you get through four episodes. <laughs> you're you're going through quite a bit of the storyline and over the course of a day. So it really just, it made sense.
0: You are obviously very well known for your work with Asian and Asian American titles. Mm. Although, in point of fact, you can actually do anything. And you have this extraordinary facility with accents. And I assume living overseas probably helped you develop that but i'm wondering what else might have contributed to it Thanks. do you speak
1: other languages yes i do and and thank you that's that's very kind i continue to work on that that's something that is very scary for me to do accents but i also love it yeah i don't know i don't i don't know what the secret sauce is for any of that i mean you know as an actor you can train to learn how to pick apart an accent But in my experience, there are some people who just sort of take to it more than others, sort of like learning a language. But perhaps part of it is that I did grow up speaking Chinese and it is such a differently oriented language, right? It's it's Mm -hmm. oriented in tone. Some of the sounds that exist in that language don't exist in English and same vice versa. And maybe it was just the fact that these are languages that are so diametrically opposed to each other that gave me access to a range that makes me hear sound more acutely. I I don't know. I have no idea. Yeah, no, that could
0: well be. Mm -hmm. Um, Because your ear had to be pitched differently depending on where you were. Right. Home or at school.
1: Right. And my father is a musician too. So I know that people who have vocal training and and music training also tend to have fine-tuned the skill of hearing a sound and being able to reproduce that sound, which is what it comes down to, I think.
0: The rhythm. The rhythm, exactly. Mm -hmm. You have narrated just a range of books, fiction, young adult titles, fantasy, but also nonfiction. And you narrated Marie Kondo's book, The Life-Changing Magic of Tidying Up, which I know was a while ago, but that book was... Huge, And I think it was also big for you as well as a narrator.
1: It was. It was. And when they gave it to me, there was no indication that it was going to be special. Well, the the one thing that they said to me was, hey, can you do this last minute? We're going to give it a little extra push for the new year because we think it would be appropriate for the new year. That was all I got. And it was with Tantor Audio, with whom I have a wonderful relationship. I love them there. And Mm -hmm. I was like, yeah, absolutely. At, by that point, I had already been doing audiobooks for five years. So it wasn't like a new thing for me, but it was huge in terms of its visibility. And I've never been a big networker. I'm kind of an introvert. And so I, I was not good at the part of the acting business where you're meant to promote yourself. And mm-hmm. so I sort of was quietly along for the first several years. Mm-hmm. And so this did a lot of the work for me where I didn't I you know I could just say oh hey I did this thing and and put that in front of people instead of my own face first I unlock the door and announce to my house I'm home picking up the pair of shoes I wore yesterday and left out in the entrance way I say thank you very much for your hard work and put them away in the shoe cupboard then I take off the shoes I wore today and place them neatly in the entrance way heading to the kitchen I put the kettle on and go to my bedroom. There I lay my handbag gently on the soft sheepskin rug and take off my outdoor clothes. I put my jacket and dress on a hanger, say, good job, and hang them temporarily from the closet doorknob.
0: Did you take any of her advice to heart? I did.
1: I, I fold my clothes in my drawers the way that she recommended, and I don't know that I'm ever going back. it's, it's it's awesome. And I have slowly been getting rid of things. It helps that I move a lot. So that's always a a good excuse to get rid of stuff.
0: Oh, you're good. I just take stuff along with me and figure, (laughs) oh, I'll sort it on the other side. (laughs) Her book gave me such an anxiety attack, I could not even open the book. Oh, no. uh, once I found out, it's just like, you take all your clothes and you pile it in the middle of the living room floor. And I was like, oh, no, 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 no. <laughs> <laughs> this is never going to happen in a million years. I am not reading this book. And the funny thing is, this is a little off topic, but... Somebody had given me that book when it first came out, and it was on my bookshelves, and I didn't even know I had it. Oh, wow. I literally, I was going through books, and it was like, oh, my God, I actually own this book that just gives me a complete fright whenever I even see an article about it. Wow. <laughs> I know. Anyway. But I love so that reaction. I love that reaction
1: just as much as the people who have really taken it to heart. I think that's, that's awesome. Yeah. You know there's another book that that's kind of polarizing like that. It was also it was also a semi bigish one compared to Kondo. Gulp by Mary Roach. So Mary Roach oh. is a pop pop science writer and I love her. She's hilarious and smart and great and unlikely topics. In unlikely topics, right? And Gulp was all about the digestive system and I gave a copy to one of my best friends. Because I was geeking out on it. Like, I love that stuff. I'm super into anything science. And she was like, I couldn't listen to it. It grossed me out so much. (laughs) I'm so sorry. I didn't mean to gross you out.
0: Oh, that's funny. I love books like that. (laughs) Yeah, I actually do too. This is a real change of topic. But a book you narrated that just came out is another nonfiction title. Wuhan Diary, Dispatches from a Quarantined City. And it's written by Fang Fang. Yes. And it's a first-person account of life in Wuhan during the COVID-19 outbreak. And I I am just so curious to know what the experience of narrating that was like, as, you know, we're all sheltered in place because of the same pandemic that she's writing about.
1: Yeah. Yeah, it was very unique. Certainly when I'm narrating any book, often we draw from our own experiences to provide depth to what's happening at any given time within a scene or with characters. And so the job is empathy and is embodiment and is connecting. But this was an extra layer, right? It's particularly with nonfiction, which can sometimes lack that because it doesn't, it isn't characters and scenes necessarily. The translator wrote in the afterword about his experience with translating it a month behind when she was writing it. And I was narrating it a month behind him. So it was this weird sort of hall of mirrors experience narrating his translation of her experience in real time where we were just just behind in the action of the book what had happened. As soon as I returned home, I turned on the computer and immediately saw the news. The quarantine would be imminently going into effect. Although a few people had suggested shutting down the city, I remember thinking, how are you supposed to lock down a city as big as Wuhan? So when the order came down, I really didn't expect it. The quarantine order also made me realize that this infectious disease that had been spreading must have already gotten to an extremely serious point. I feel very fortunate, not just to have this work, but to have been able to exorcise some of the feelings and thoughts that Fang Fang also expressed over the course of her uh, quarantine.
0: You have, as you said, you have a degree in dance and performance studies, mm-hmm. and I'm curious how that training helps you when you're in the booth narrating.
1: Yeah, so performing is an embodied art form. I mean, in any, in any time a human is expressing, you're using your body to express, right? But particularly with live, in, in real-time performing arts, dance... Music, singing, acting—those, you you know, your your entire body is the medium with which you are expressing. And for me, there's not really a super clear line between any of it. With dance, my mother was in a dance troupe while she was pregnant with me, so I've literally been doing it ever since (laughs) I was conceived. Um, It's uh, the kind of dance that I was doing was Chinese folk dance, and that is largely based in storytelling, so you know the 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 two ideas were always married for me later on in college with with the focus primarily on um, contemporary and modern. It's more abstract, and so you don't necessarily have a through line of divine characters or or stories, but my my beginning was in that, and so when you're doing voiceover, you're not just a voice, you are your body that is producing sound that is then being recorded and so you can't divorce your body from the the voice that's coming out in fact I found that with the with the onset of the pandemic that there were times when I thought psychologically I was doing okay and then I would get into the booth and my voice just collapsed like it just wasn't there and I that's when I sort of realized oh there's a lot more going on emotionally that my body is saying hey You need to process some stuff right now. You can't disconnect what's going on
0: from, you know, your brain. You sing and you continue to perform on stage, and theater is such a collaborative art form. Mm -hmm. Um, And I wonder if you miss that when it's just you in the booth.
1: Oh, so much. (laughs) I miss it so so much. Like I said, you know, I'm, I'm I'm a bit of an introvert. I do like being alone and working alone most of the time but but there's just uh live performance and working with other people is so nice which i think a lot of people again you know to speak of the, what's going on in the world right now a lot of people are feeling pretty acutely being removed from what we may take for granted and and say even just a, a regular office setting yeah connecting with people is really special i definitely miss that
0: You've narrated any number of series, including Rin Chapeco's The Bone Witch Trilogy. Three long books with a vast number of characters. Not helped by the three males being named Column, Khaled, and Kuntz. <laughs> right. <laughs> how, do you, how did you keep the voices straight?
1: They're real to me. I mean, you know, they're not people I, I walk around with. <laughs> But when I'm performing, they're real people to me. So I actually hadn't even made that connection that you just did with the characters' names. They were just different people. i I didn't even put it together that they sound sort of similar. Yeah, because they're so distinct in my mind. It's like knowing somebody named Sally Ann versus Sally Beth. you know, they, you just know who they are.
0: I loved your narration of those books. Thank you. I started listening to one good little researcher that I am, and it's just like, oh, damn, I'm listening to all of these. Are you kidding? (laughs) That's awesome. And that is not typically my wheelhouse. I'm not a kind of fantasy person at all, but your narration was wonderful. And you have the ability to narrate men. And that, I find, can sometimes be very tricky for women narrators. Is it wrong to inquire after my favorite student? Asha, much younger
1: than you, have had more experience in romance, despite having done much less for Keon. I've kissed a pretty Asha a time or two myself back in my prime. I'm far too busy to be thinking about that. Poppycock. The counselor tore off a piece of Tenor bread.
0: Balance must be struck.
1: You are still so young, my dear, and in danger of being overworked if it were up to your Ashaka, mistress. Enjoy your youth. Do not let
0: heritans like Parmena convince you otherwise. Not only did you do it well, but you actually could make them sound sexy. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> that was am- and I. It was just extraordinary.
1: <laughs> that's That's a very big compliment. Thank you very much.
0: Uh, no, I meant I really mean it. It was really something because I was really able to visualize them. I mean, this was just this awesome. movie unfolding in my mind as awesome. you were reading.
1: Yeah, that's how it feels to me when I'm experiencing them. And that's and that's what it is. I'm experiencing them and then it the mic kind of picks it up.
0: Well, the nice thing about narration is the range of characters you can play are are infinite.
1: Yeah, it's that is one of the greatest pleasures that I have in doing this work is being able to exercise that, which is why I love, particularly love sci-fi and fantasy, because those tend to be the genres where people will write something like a bear talking or an alien who's covered in fur, who's also a, a diplomat and, and persnickety, you know,
0: that's, that's like, <laughs> exactly, yeah, I, I love it. <laughs> Walk me through the process, your process for preparing to narrate and narrating. What do you do? How do you how do you get your arms around it?
1: Well, that has changed over the course of my time doing this. Experience has allowed me to shorten the prep process because actually it's it's two ways. I've become more familiar with the sort of material that is given to me and also the people who who hire me the producers and casting directors and uh, publishers are more familiar with me as well so they're sending me material that they know they they can trust me to do and and it's something that I've probably at least genre-wise have done before and so just having familiarity with the genres themselves unlocks one piece of the preparatory process so I know broadly what sort of tones we're working for, with, perhaps what sort of characters we may be working with, and conventions and all of that. And then it's just read through and make notes about who the characters are, what are clues about the characters that the author may not have even um, very explicitly written, but hints at how they behave in a particular scene, even though it's not the at the forefront of what, that character is is described as, you know what I mean? So that's, yeah. I'm reading the script, looking for clues about who the people are that are in it and what they care about and what's happening in any particular moment.
0: This is a bit of a double question. How long can you stay in the booth and read? And then since you were trained as a dancer, is the sedentary aspect of narrating a challenge?
1: Yeah recording from home. I have to take a break every hour. And there came a time when I was first recording from home that I stopped doing yoga, I stopped teaching, I was I was doing a lot of teaching um, fitness for seniors and as well as yoga, and dance. And I stopped all of that. And I was just doing audiobooks from home. And my body got very angry at me. And I, I threw out my back a few times from the demands. It's, it's, it is physically demanding in a very unique way when you're narrating. Mm-hmm. So I've learned, I wish I had known this earlier, <laughs> that what my body needs in order to not get stuck, for the muscles to not get stuck. And that means that I only go for about an hour at a time and then I step out and take a break. And I will do that on average about six booth hours a day.
0: One delightful and unexpected book that you narrated is The Bride Test by Helen Huang. Did you enjoy reading that? It sounded like it would just be a blast to do.
1: I loved reading that. And I, while I have done some romance, that's not one of my primary genres. And so it was a real treat to, you know, dip my toe into the romance world again. Helen wrote a story that... I felt so seen in. So, you know, I grew up in a Chinese enclave or Asian enclave in LA and then went to school in Berkeley and made friends there who were also in Asian enclaves and then lived in Asia. You know, so the first time I was out of that was in New York City, actually. But that was my experience growing up was, was primarily Asian communities or majority Asian communities. And outside of these enclaves, that's not an experience that a lot of Americans have. And it's certainly not something that gets written about in fiction. And so Helen, particularly, the scene where they're at a Chinese restaurant and it's a wedding and banquet. And I grew up going to those. I still go to those, you know, cousins get married or nephews and nieces at this point. (laughs) And it, it was the first time that I had seen that written about ever. And I actually got a little teary because she wrote it so well. She wrote it spot on. That is exactly what it is when you're there. And
0: that's, that was really special. It's a book that could so easily just be a parody of a a mother going to Asia to find a bride for her son. As I said, it could easily have been a parody of Asian culture and an Asian mom. But with her writing and your narration, it's not that there is a real authenticity at the heart of that book. I think. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you.
1: I'm glad that I'm glad that came through. Yeah. I didn't want to approach it. You know, going circling back to our conversation about the um, tropes and conventions in romance, it can be very easy to sort of fly away on the on the surface level of beautiful, easy fantasy, the fant- fantastical parts of it. I saw that Helen wrote a story about this woman who's an immigrant, and it was like, oh, this is an immigrant story. This is a story about this guy who's dealing with neurodiversity and and, and discrimination, and that's at the heart of what's going on here. What was this smell? After a moment, she realized it was the lack of smell. She couldn't smell garbage and rotting fruit. A haze of exhaust didn't darken the sunset to tamarind-colored rust. She rubbed her jet-lagged eyes and admired a sky painted in bright hues of apricot and hyacinth. What a difference an ocean made. Homesickness hit her then, and she almost missed the pollution. Something familiar would have been nice as she stood there, on an unknown street, in an unknown city. In a world far away from everyone she loved. Sure, the romance—the romance is the thing—and you know, that happens. But at the, but the heart of it, the meat of it, is that is the the immigrant and the man who has autism coming together, and how their lives intersect. And they, that was
0: important. Right, because it even though it really is also a completely delightful listen. There's meat. I mean, I'm glad you said at the meat of it. There's meat. There actually is meat on those bones. Right, it's not just right. this little souffle. And I think right. that's why you could feel so much for these people as Absolutely. a listener. I think that's why I could. Yeah. How do you decide what projects to take on? Well, like
1: I said, I'm I'm very lucky that at this point my relationship with producers is wonderful, and they. Give me work that is hard for me to turn down ever. <laughs> My specialty is Asian American narratives, certainly. And I have the some of the language. So that has given me access to a wide range of material because there isn't just such thing as Asian literature. That's not how it works. It's just across genres you have authors and subject matter and stories that have Asian characters or feature them or whatever. So, I've had access to a wide range of material from the very beginning. i I can't even express how grateful I am for that. And so, at this point i'm I'm really offered work that i I love. The only time I turn things down for the most part, I mean, maybe once in a great while it's it's something that I, I don't feel comfortable taking on, but that's really, really, really rare. Most of the time, it's just time limitation, where it's like I I can't fit this into my schedule. I'm so sorry to have to turn this down. That's where I'm at, and I knock on wood and thank my lucky stars every day for that.
0: Emily, you've won many awards for your narration, and now you've been named a golden voice by Audiophile Magazine. And I just wonder what that means to you.
1: Oh, What that means to me. I feel so much love. And gratitude. And so often in the entertainment industry, it can be survival of the fittest, sink or swim, shark tank, however you want to put it, right? It can be very competitive. And part of the reason that I've been able to stick around in audiobooks for so long is not just a love of the form itself, but really a love for the people who are involved in this industry. It is a special breed, people who decide that audiobooks are their thing, whether it's at Audiophile Magazine or on the publishing side or as a narrator or as a director. I I, I love this community. It feels like a community. I'm also a little protective of that community, but because because I feel so connected with it and, and a part of it. And being honored and recognized with awards just feels, I don't really have a lot of words for it. I just feel like the love back, I guess, is is how that that feels. And it feels like, okay, okay, this work that I've been doing, you know, trying to fix this and and fix that and get better at this. Okay, okay, it's working. Okay, it's working. I'm doing something right. Awesome. It's this awesome validation. And I really appreciate it.
0: Well, thank you. And congratulations, truly. And really, you are one of those narrators If I know nothing about the book, but you're narrating it, I'll give it a go. Oh, wow.
1: Thank you. And that's the (laughs) truth.
0: So thank you. Thanks for giving me your time.
1: You're so welcome. Thank you for the honor and for asking me to be a part of this.
0: That's actor and one of Audiophile's 2020 Golden Voices, Emily Wu Zeller. You can find reviews for The Bride Test, The Bone Witch, The Art of Tidying Up, and many, many other books narrated by Emily at audiophilemagazine.com. Subscribe to Behind the Mic wherever you get your podcasts. And then leave us a rating on Apple because it helps people to find us. And don't forget to follow us on Twitter at audiophilemag. This has been a bonus edition of Behind the Mic. I'm Joe Reed. Good listening.